Troisel. Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Richard Thomas of Swansea University. He's written a book which will be published in May. Its title is Cricketing Lives, a characterful history from pitch to page. It's published by Reaction Books. That's R-E-A-K-T-I-O-N, Reaction Books. Uh, and it's priced at £20, which for 450 pages in hardback represents pretty good value for all lovers of the game. And perhaps, as we'll find out from Richard, some of those who are yet to fall in love with it. We'd like to welcome to the uh, CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast, Dr Richard Thomas, Senior Lecturer in Media and Communication at Swansea University, co-author of Reporting Elections, Rethinking the Logic of Campaign Coverage. Uh, but perhaps more importantly for us, a cricket lover and somebody who's uh, ended up writing a, a book all about cricket. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Before we dive into talking about the book, tell us a little bit about your love of cricket, where it came from and, and how it's grown. Well, I think a bit like you, Steve, you know, cricket is something that I inherited from a lovely dad. You know, it was um, something that he started me off uh, with. He had a bit of a pedigree himself. My dad, he actually was captain Swansea University cricket team. So the fact that I find myself working in Swansea University now has got a nice sort of family symmetry to it. He never pushed me as, as a cricketer, but he did one thing for me, which is as a kid, he turned me from a right-hander into a left-hander. So whenever I picked up the bat and took my stance, he told me that he always kind of turned me around because he felt that that was going to give me a benefit later in life. I, I may think, uh, you know, he never stopped supporting me. I think some of that probably has got to do with guilt because I think from that moment when he turned me around, I always looked like somebody that was holding the bat the wrong way and standing the wrong way and playing the wrong shots. Um, but he never stopped encouraging me. Um, uh, it took me to, to, to the cricket, started taking me to see Glamorgan as a little kid. I loved it ever since. As a teenager, when I was 18, uh, an uncle put me on the waiting list for the MCC and I, I took my place in the queue and I became a full member of the MCC in 2005. And, and around that time, I just started to sort of put some thoughts about cricket and my interest in, in the history of it on paper. And I, I sort of pitched them to a, a number of places. And I, I, was, I started writing for a magazine called All Out Cricket, which eventually became Wisdom Cricket Monthly. And I've written lots for them over the years, both in the published uh, hard copy magazine and also online. And my dad was always saying to me, you know, well, you should write a book. You should definitely write a book. Um, and of course, you know, that's a big undertaking, isn't it? You know, we're all busy. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm never going to write a book about cricket. I'll just write these sort of small, short articles. But one day I got a, an email out of the blue from a commissioning editor, Dave Watkins, um, from Re Reaction Books, who had, had read something I wrote and said, look, you know, maybe there's a book in here. Uh, and it sort of it just sort of germinated for a while. And I thought about it and we batted it back and forth. Uh, and then here we are, you know, we're in pre-production stage. I was very fortunate, I, fortunate and unfortunate. I had a very clear incentive to try and get that book done. Um, my dad was very ill. My dad had cancer. Um, and, you know, it was clear that he wasn't going to be around for too much longer. And it was a huge incentive for me to get that book finished. And I was really lucky. He died in March uh, of last year. 
but I was really lucky in his management. I managed to get it finished because I wanted him to read it. I wanted him to have the pleasure of seeing the fact that he'd inculcated this great love of cricket in me and that that book that he thought was in me actually was in me and there it was I was able to give it to him in sort of draft form and and he I know he got a huge amount of pleasure of reading that in the last couple of weeks of his life really I mean he was very keen to point out the spelling mistakes and things that he thought that I got a little bit wrong but um, that was nice that was that was lovely that he was able to read it sad that he won't see it kind of become a real kind of book and a publication but gratifying for me and for him I think that there was that nice sort of end to his life where he actually got to read that book I was very happy about that. I was interested in the title, um, the first bit, uh, and I was really interested to look at the tone of the book uh, and wondering whether there's a sense in which it, it was quite important to you to talk about the the hopes for the future of cricket rather than just looking at its past. I think what I was trying to do with the book is to try and drag in perhaps the more casual um, fan of cricket or the, or the more casual spectator for cricket really uh, and and I needed it to be something about that I was looking in the early part of the book I talk about people's various definitions of the game of cricket and one that I came across that I really loved was probably from the most unlikely sources from Douglas Jardine of course who's England captain in the famous infamous bodyline tour of the early 1930s and he defined cricket as battle, service, sport and art. And I thought that was a lovely definition of cricket. And I was very keen to have that in the title somewhere. Uh, And I sort of made that fairly clear that I would like that. But then uh, thinking about it, that's not really saying much about cricket. That's a bit of a sort of uh, very tenuous connection to the game. So I sort of, I do keep that as a theme within the book, but uh, I thought we needed something else. And the other thing that I wanted to do was to reflect that, you know, people have lives outside of cricket. And often these great heroes that we see on the field, that the stories about them off the field are equally as interesting as the stories about them on the field. And I also wanted in the book, which is why I'm very happy with the title as it as it's ended up, to reflect the fact that cricket exists on the pitch, but it also exists, you know, in something that we read about and we hear about and we listen to, because after all, not many people are lucky enough to play cricket, certainly to a a high level. So I was keen to try and, if I could, embrace all of those things. As far as the kind of optimism and cricket lives, I think I, I sort of finished the book. I've managed to I think, embrace its sort of longevity. I start the book with a, a fairly oblique reference to Homer, you know, the, the the classic literature. And I end with talking about how cricket is going to, is going to recover from COVID-19 and how it's going to kind of move on beyond this terrible pandemic that that, that, that we've been living through. So I think I've managed to, to gather its sort of longevity together, but I end the book, I think, on a very optimistic note. And I say, look, we, we've heard about these incredibly resilient characters, you know, the battlers, the, the, the servants, the, the sportsmen and women and the artists who, who grace the game. And all of those people still exist in the game and they'll come again in the game and we'll get back to where we were uh, before the terrible pandemic. How did you go about deciding who to talk about and what to talk about? Because anybody looking at the contents of the book would see that there are an incredible list of names, events, yeah. 
and issues that uh, that, have, uh, that you're covering. So how did you make those decisions about who to leave in or who not to write about? I mean, it, it's, it's a fairly loose chronology in as much as it does start at the beginning of cricket, talks about cricket in the 13th and 14th century, fairly quickly moves on to the sort of 17th and 18th. And then, you know, within by chapter three, we're in the 19th century. It's a personal choice of people that I found interesting or people that I was sort of taken with or people that I thought were particularly noteworthy. The main things are in there. Golden age of cricket, the damage of war, roaring 20s, body line, recovery from war and so on, all the way up to the evolution of one day cricket, the age of the global superstar, you know, up to Ben Stokes uh, headingly. There were a couple of things that I was determined that were going to go into that book that sort of disturbed the narrative a little bit, the chronology a little bit. One of them was a chapter, which I'm very proud that I, I wrote about women's cricket. And, and, and again, that was um, in some way deference to my dad as well because my dad was a huge fan of women's cricket his favorite player that he would never uh, tire of telling me was Sarah Taylor the former England wicketkeeper he thought she, she was the best wicketkeeper in the world he loved watching Sarah Taylor play cricket and I as I researched the book I was outraged really that the amount of coverage that women's cricket got was so so much less than the men's given that for example England's women you know, had won several World Cups before England's men won their first. And I, and I take a, a sort of quite an advert, it's not an adversarial book, but I think that chapter is, listen, folks, start taking women's cricket a bit more seriously. These are global superstars, every bit as much as the men. And I was very pleased that I managed to get that chapter. So there, there are a couple of chapters like that, that sort of disturb the natural chronology. There's another one that I stop off and I talk about some of the key contests in cricket, like um, gents versus players, Oxford versus Cambridge, um, Yorkshire versus Lancashire. Uh, and there's another chapter where I talk about the administrative side of cricket. It's probably a bit more exciting than it sounds. I talk about, you know, Lords, the MCC. I talk about some of the kind of great uh, statesmen of, of cricket administration. I talk about wisdom as well and its interesting history. I talk about some of the benefactors that have bankrolled cricket, like Julian Kahn and Paul Getty, and latterly, of course, infamously, um, Alan Stanford. You said that it was people's behaviour, actions, life off the cricket pitch that often were as important to you as their time as cricketers. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and perhaps any particular discoveries that you made about uh, cricketers that you were writing about? Very easy to write about cricketers and just forget the fact that they are human beings and they're human beings that things happen to who have sometimes difficult and complicated lives off the pitch. So I was keen to try and add some of those extra layers to some of the great players. I wouldn't say that I've, I'm revealing any sort of huge revelations about some of these players, but I am trying to offer some balance. A case in point well, you know, let's look at some of the great, great players who, who do occur in the appear in the book. W.G. Grace, for example, um, Bradman, Wally Hammond, Keith Miller, Gary Sobers. Um, these are gargantuan players I I in cricket, but they all had other parts to themselves. You know, W.G., uh, the more you read about him, the more you realise that this was a man who dominated cricket, who became cricket in many ways, but also you know, manipulated the game in order to suit himself a lot of the time, both financially and, and on the field. 
You've got Bradman, whose you know records will stand forever in terms of averages, runs scored, and all of that stuff. But a complicated man, a difficult man off the field, a difficult man to get to know. Uh, not someone who gathered friends in the way that other pl- players perhaps gathered friends. Could be quite autocratic as a captain, quite autocratic certainly as an administrator. Ian Chappell, I know, is on record as, as saying that one of the re- main reasons for World Series cricket and Kerry Packer's intervention in the game was because of was of, of, of Bradman's sort of intransigence as a as an administrator, Wally Hammond, incredibly, you know, elegant, fantastic, one of England's greatest, world's greatest ever players. Very difficult private life, very difficult kind of personal life. Keith Miller as well, a kind of larrikin, but someone who found himself in some difficult spots during the course of his life. So I think bringing it more up to date, try and give a balanced view of Jeffrey Boycott, of Shane Warne, of Ben Stokes, actually, in the last chapter. Now, these are people who have had difficult experiences off the pitch, perhaps haven't helped themselves off the pitch a lot of the time. But yet, because they're obviously so human, it makes the feats that they've pulled off on the pitch actually superhuman. I think there were some people that I write about in the book, and I can think of a few examples, you know, where they didn't seem to have those slightly more dubious sides to their character. I mean, Trumper was one, Victor Trumper, who, who was an immortal cricketer back in at the turn of the last century played for Australia Jack Hobbs of course you know these are people that didn't have you know there didn't seem to be any of the murky murkiness around their characters these were great men as well as great cricketers Frank Worrell was another one Larry Constantine you know these these were people who were as good off the field as they were on it and of course some of them including those last two I mentioned Worrell and Constantine they had such a massive impact on the world beyond cricket you know they were right there in in that very difficult period with race relations in this country and beyond and they did so much to pave the way for what's happened since in cricket where we've got I think this fantastic multiracial game where everybody is welcome and everybody can play it. And we celebrate the fact that everybody can play it. And they did so much for that. So some of the people, the big names, have got those extra dimensions to their character and others don't don't seem to. So I was very keen to try and give that balance if I could. One of the chapters in the book, you write about some cricket writers and broadcasters very specifically. Yeah, um, I guess in your professional life, you're always looking at writing as a as a journalist or uh, observing journalism. There clearly is something for you in looking at cricket that is about the written word and 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 its or the spoken word. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yeah. your, your kind of interest there? I suppose, given my love for books and my love of reading, always inevitable. I suppose that I would end up researching and teaching journalism theory and practice, as I'm very pleased to be doing in Swansea. I've always appreciated good writing. It's always inspired me. So I wanted to showcase that in the book, hence that bit in the title, Pitch to Page. Um, We've got such lovely writers about cricket. When I was about 10, my dad showed me a book that he'd been given for his 21st birthday. It was inscribed to my dad. Uh, It was given to him in 1954. It was a very dull looking book, to be honest. It's a very plain green drab cover and it's called the book of cricket which is an equally uninspiring title for a book but it was written by a man called Denzel Batchelor and I never gave that book back to him he knew I had it but he knew I loved it so much and it, and I think it was one of those questions 
that if someone said your place is on fire, you need to grab something and run out. Obviously, the first would be my wife. The second would be this book. It's something that I read a lot. I refer to it a lot in my book. It's a book of pen portraits of great players. It was written in 1952. It starts with W.G. Grace and ends with Peter May. If you're able to buy it, it's still available. Occasionally you see a copy of it um, online. You can pick one up for a few pounds. Do so because you won't regret it. It's I love the way that he writes. So much pathos in the way that Denzel Batchelor writes. And, and there are others too. A man called Raymond Robertson Glasgow, they used to call him Crusoe. He's got another lovely deft way with words, lots of pathos and passion. I got to know David Frith, who is another one of my great cricket writing heroes. I, I went up to and introduced him to myself to him out of the blue one day at Lord's. And and he he and I chatted for a couple of hours about all sorts of things, and I've kept in touch with him. He's written a very nice testimonial for my book. He's been very kind. Amongst the modern writers, people like Derek Pringle, Mick, Vic Marks, just, just retired, of course, Mike Selvey, formerly of The Guardian, Mike Atherton, I like all those. I think Gideon Haig is, is, a, is a lovely writer, you know, very erudite, very insightful Um but 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 my chapter, as you rightly say, Steve, is about three three really. I call them the the Holy Trinity: um, John Arlott, uh, Jim Swanton, Neville Cardus. Again, they reflect that human side of, of cricket characters, cricketing lives. In as much as they they were all different, they all had this other side to their characters. But it adds so much to their lives. It's added so much to their journalism. And I was very pleased when I was trying to get someone to write a nice forward for my book. I wanted someone who could kind of exude that real passion and love for the game and all of its foibles. And uh, I was very lucky, um, Daniel Norcross from uh, Test Match Special has written the forward to my book, and he's really captured that in in what he's written. You know, the fact that we there's a place for everybody in cricket, you know, heroes and villains and sort of various kind of flavours within those two extremes. Do you still think that cricket is an important part of cultural life in in modern Britain? I, I absolutely do. And I think, um, I mean, it's always been important to me and it's always been important to lots of people that I know. But I think when we were all needing it most, sort of, you know, just as we'd been in lockdown for a few months and then, Cricket sort of emerged, didn't it? Blinking, you know, in the sunlight. You know, there were all these kind of bio bubbles, but Pakistan, Australia, Ireland, West Indies, they all travelled across when they didn't have to. They all managed to produce these fantastic test matches with no people that all suddenly just sort of lifted us. And I think that was an example of cricket going beyond just cricket. And it just seemed to kind of make us all feel a little bit better for a while, didn't it? So it's incredibly important, I think. Um, I do try in the book to sort of track how cricket has intersected with things like politics and war uh, and controversy. You know, there's lots of stuff in there about, for example, you know, the, the Dolavira affair, which, which sort of culminated in South Africa being annexed out of 
international sport and how various players, I mentioned them earlier, didn't I? Worrell and Constantine did their best to try and heal sort of racial wounds and so on. Bodyline is in there, of course, as you would imagine. There's a, there's quite a long chapter about Bodyline, but look, looked at from the point of view of the key personalities that were involved in that on both sides. And one of the other things that I sort of go on to talk about are the whole notion of of World Series cricket and the fact that this introduced, opened the door to these kind of rebel tours, rebel organisations. And I talk a bit about England's rebel tours to South Africa. Um, I talk quite a lot about Mike Gatting and the things that that he's been involved in in cricket and some of the kind of unwanted attention that he's had over a period of time and how he's kind of bounced back from that with this great resilience. I I talk about South Africa's re-emergence into cricket and that fabulous game they played the inaugural test against the West Indies and the fact that at the time you know there was a lot of controversy and it was nothing to do with South Africa it was about the selection of the West Indian side to actually play in that match that created a bit of a, a spectator boycott. I end up talking about you know gambling but I actually start off talking about gambling and how that's been a sort of background blighting of cricket starts off with you know so the the wealthy landowners betting huge sums of money in the 19th century uh, on games that basically being played by their their staff up up to the the tragic sort of story of of Hansi Kronje and that era when people you know were getting sucked into spread betting and spot betting and match fixing and all of this kind of stuff so I, I try not to avoid some of the things that have been difficult in in our sport and and have and have blighted our sport and have left a sort of a stain on it but that's all part of it isn't it it's an imperfect thing and that's what makes it interesting i think you return to the cricketing rivalry between england and australia quite a few times in the book yeah. and i'm reminded of that quote that you had from douglas jardine at the beginning yeah uh, perhaps one word that remind that reminds me of that uh, rivalry is the word battle yeah, um, battle. My goodness. Um, well, battle it absolutely is. That that was such an intense rivalry, uh, and I look at some of those early games. You know, back in the the, the end of the of the of the nineteenth century, in the beginning of the of the twentieth. I look at the nineteen hundred and two series. You know that the rivalry seems every bit as fierce, um, and you think surely these two teams cannot keep up that en- that intensity of antipathy towards one another, but they do, of course. Uh, I don't think there's a sporting rivalry like it. And um, for me, it's the epitome of cricket. It's got everything. It's got the history. It's got the, tr- it's got the great stories. It's got that rivalry. But unlike some of those other things that I've written about, like Jets v. Players, Yorkshire against Lancashire, perhaps it's never lost any of its intensity. I mean, if you look at Bodyline 90 years ago, almost, wasn't it? Most recent contests, perhaps for different reasons, are still as passionate. They're still as intense. They're still as controversial at times. And from these sort of hugely passionate contests emerge these great heroes, don't they? For me, there's there's no contest like it. Perhaps Wales versus England at rugby gets a bit close. But I think over a kind of an extended period, you know, and because obviously test cricket is played over five days, you live and die several times during a match, don't you? You know, have all that, that fantastic ebb and flow. So for me, it, it is the it's the contest. And I was 
thinking about how dominant this was in the book. And, and it sort of confirmed to me when I was going through the index, actually. And I think the number of times that England against Australia is mentioned is a lot in the Ashes. There are other countries involved in there as well. Lots about the West Indies, uh, lots about India and so on. But that's that's the sort of spine of the book, really. The fact that this fantastic contest has kind of shaped, you know, cricket, really, hasn't it? Who do you talk about in the book that those with an interest in cricket in Wales might be interested in? Well, of course, there's some local um, familiar characters in there. Um, there's, there's two chapters, Steve, about what the First and Second World Wars did to cricketers uh, and cricket and, and, and talks about those who've lost. And two great Welsh sporting characters uh, certainly emerged from the second of those two chapters. Wilf Waller, of course, who survived being a prisoner of war and was a massive character in Glamorgan history. I mean, he was someone who really split opinion. I remember when I was old enough and my dad um, started taking me down to Sophia Gardens. I mean, the first time he took me to watch cricket was we were talking earlier about Cardiff Arms Park. He took me there to watch cricket to begin with. But then it was Sophia Gardens, of course. And I remember as a kid being absolutely terrified of Wilfred Waller. He looked such an imposing man and obviously not someone to suffer fools gladly. I think we would all agree. Uh, just just frightened of him. Uh, just someone that I would run the other way if I saw him walking to a, But I mean, a titan of, of Glamorgan cricket. Uh, Frank Keating, I mentioned this in the book, the great journalist, said that the first time he ever heard booing on a cricket field was was people booing Wolf Waller. Um, uh, and, and the other the other one I mentioned in that chapter is Morris Turnbull, of course, who, like Wilfred Wooler, played rugby for Wales, um, but he went one better. He played cricket for England. I mean, a, a selfless service, a real Welsh hero in every possible sense of the word. Obviously, he perished in World War II, um, but the way that he gave his life in the service of his country uh, and his sporting life in the service of Glamorgan, on and off the field. I mean, someone who stewarded the finances, managed the club, acted as the club secretary. I mean, an enormous contribution to Welsh cricket. Um, so th those those are in there. Alan Jones is in there as well. I uh, In the discussion I have about the rest of the world tour in 1970, you know, I, I talk about the quote from John Arlott, who said, you know, making something a test match and then taking away test match status is as cruel a trick as anybody's ever played on anybody. And I, and I was really pleased that when Alan Jones was finally recognised as an official England player, I was able to include that in the book. You know, it hadn't gone to press. Um, I was able to, to mention that. So he's in there. Viv Richards is in there. Of course, there's quite a big uh, section on Viv Richards. And I mentioned something that emerged from an interview I did with Matthew Maynard a few years back, actually. Uh, we were talking about the impact of Viv Richards on Glamorgan when he came to play for us. And he said that something like before Viv came, they were all paid to play cricket, but it was only after Viv arrived that they became really professional cricketers, you know, and what he did, his influence, his example in the dressing room and on the field. Um, and also talk as well about the fact that, you know, 2020 cricket has been a wonderful innovation, hasn't it? It's brought box office kind of players. It's brought money into the game. But it's also brought that slightly sort of 
fleeting relationship that players sometimes have with the teams that they're playing for. And I use Majid as, a, as an example of someone who became a player for us, uh, but then became part of us, didn't they? We, we became part of him. And these fabulous relationships between overseas players when they first came into the, to the game in 1968 and ever since. And I used him as an example. And there's a quote that I used from Tony Lewis, where he said, you know, if it had been possible, Wales could have de- declared itself independent and made Majid the king. Um, this great love that we had have and have for him. And I remember as a kid growing up and it was Majid. Majid was the star in that team, wasn't he? He was just liable to do things that other people couldn't do. Um, so there's there's a lot of of sort of Glamorgan intermeshed in that narrative as I, as I work through it. Yeah, you talk about individuals who can do what most of us cannot do. There's a chapter devoted to Ian Botham's Ashes experience in 1981. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why that's there? Yeah, I, I remember that that very vividly, obviously, because that that maybe until Ben Stokes did what he did in 2019, perhaps never in my lifetime anyway, is one cricketer had such a major impact on a, on a test series. And I remember in 1981, at the time I was doing my apprenticeship as a, as a motor um, mechanic. And I was in a garage, a huge cricket fan, but I was surrounded by people who really weren't interested in cricket. So uh, knowing that the cricket was going on, I remember, you know, trying to, to very quietly put the car radios on while I was working on these vehicles and people turn out switching off. We don't want all that rubbish on and um, being very frustrated that I wasn't able to sort of keep in touch with the cricket. So I would sort of sneak out and would do a test drive on somebody's car. I'd be tuned in to test match special. And I remember a couple of times tuning into the radio and thinking this game that I last tuned into maybe two hours ago is now completely different because of a run of wickets or, you know, fabulous batting is two centuries. Those five wickets he took uh, for one. Um, These things were, he was just turning a game so quickly. He was transforming a game. And I thought, again, he was, he sort of typifies the thing that I was trying to get at in the book where incredible cricketer, but interesting backstory, you know, fascinating elements to his personality, explore and talk about his relationship with John Arlott in the book. I mean, they, they had an incredibly close relationship. You, people, two men that you never would have put together. And yet I think it started when uh, both of them as a young kid, you know, on the, on the staff was asked to carry John Arlett's kind of picnic basket up into a commentary box and they became friends and and they followed each other. They both lived very close to each other in the Channel Island. I don't know if he still does it, but both of them certainly for a long time used to toast John Arlett with a a bottle of wine and leave the cork on his grave every year on his birthday. Uh, And he he talks in it, and I, I have it in the book, where when they were both on Alderney, John Arlett used to ring him at the same time every morning and say, come as soon as you can and bring your thirst. Uh, and they used to share a nice, you know, classic bottle of wine because, of course, he, he, was a, he was a major wine connoisseur, John Arlett, wasn't he? So I just thought both of them, you know, with, with the things that he's done and the controversies that he's found himself in, the massive things that he's done for charity, some of his political opinions, of course, now he's in the House of Lords. I mean, this is this is a man whose life off the field is just as interesting and as fascinating as his life on the field. And I thought he, if anybody deserved a chapter to themselves, it was probably him. Uh, and he's got one. What would you like people who buy the book to get from it? 
Well, I suppose what I would like is to turn someone who's a, perhaps an interested supporter into a real fan, a real diehard fan. And I've tried to include some things that might help with that. I've, I've sort of in, tried to interpret, you know, in a light way, the laws of the game. I've tried to, to, to sort of bust some of the jargon as well. But I, I'm trying to celebrate it, really. I'm celebrating the game. I'm celebrating its history. I'm trying to convince... In fact, I say... I say at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of uh, the end of the introduction, you know, that if you read a chapter a night when it's cold and wet in the winter, you know, hopefully you will emerge the other end agreeing with with Douglas Jardine, you know, who, who sort of, as well as saying it was battle, service, sport and art, also said, before that, said it's a beautiful, beautiful game. And I'm hoping people will will buy that, you know, that it's real, it's human, it's passionate, it's sad, happy, emotional, and also to understand that cricket is a bit of a village, you know, it's full of connections and coincidences. And I remember a few years back, um, my dad gave me a, a cap, um, a Welsh cap, actually. He played for Welsh secondary schools in 1951 at Old Trafford. Um, my dad, being the modest guy he was, it was in a Tesco carrier bag in the attic. He, he said, oh, you might be interested in having this. He gave it to me. It's now got pride of place in my office on my, on my shelf there. And I sort of brush it and keep the dust off it regularly. And he said that that cap was presented to him by Jack Hobbs. Jack Hobbs shook his hand and gave him this cap. And Jack Hobbs it played one of his very early games for Surrey against a team containing WG Grace. Um, when you look at those degrees of separation thing, you know, I go from me to my dad to Jack Hobbs to WG Great. And we would all have our own versions of that. You you probably more than anybody, Steve, would have your own version of that as well. So I'm hoping that I can bring that kind of love, that intrigue, that sort of real kind of sense of co connection, coincidence. And, and as much as anything else, just we have a game that we can be proud of, you know. I feel like we have to end there, but there's, there is one other thing that's occurred to me as you've been talking. You took so much care about the, the writing of the book uh, and the title and so on. I'm guessing that there was probably as much care taken in how the book looks. Well, we've got, uh, we've got WG Grace on the cover um, because, um, you know, that's where it all starts, really. I mean, he was the first global cricket superstar, um, big in every sense of the word, of course. Um, and, and I think it's probably fitting that we start with him, I, I guess, for the sort of more ephemeral cr cricket lover, is also a figure that everybody would recognise as well. So he, he's on the back. Um, I've, I've, I've be, people have been very kind that have read it so far. Um, uh, there'll be some of those comments on the back, I hope. Um, that's just being all prepared now at the moment. But uh, yeah, uh, it looks, I'm very happy with the way it looks and I'm very happy with the title and I'm very happy with the book. I hope other people will, will think the same and I hope people will enjoy reading it. And any more from you in the, in sort of cricket writing? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Cause in the, when I'm talking about it being a personal choice of lots of the things I talk about, I do say in the introduction that it's possible to write a parallel book that could be just as interesting that might not mention any of the people in the first book. So maybe there's a second book in there, you know, with mentioning all of those people I didn't mention in the first. Well done for getting that in. I'm sure the uh, publishers have taken notes. <laughs>
thank you ever so much, Richard, for giving us your time today. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks ever so much. I've really enjoyed chatting, Steve. Many thanks to Richard for that interview and for all the hard work that I'm sure he's gone through to write the book. So that's Cricketing Lives, a characterful story from pitch to page, published by Reaction Books, available to pre-order now from all the usual online outlets. If you want to contact us with a story, or if you or your club would like to be interviewed for the podcast, do listen to the contact information at the end of the show. Join us in a fortnight when we'll have interviews with Lord Peter Hayne and several of the cricketers from Unasagerun Cricket Club, who will be remembering the day the Soweto Cricket Club paid a visit to South Wales in 1995. Hope you've enjoyed the cricket chat. Join us again for some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Hoilvau. Bye-bye for now. Story you have Nigadani. Macrosic Gisilti. A Bosch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail dot com. Nate Elchintidal in Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nate Intidal in Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.